You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. So, so from my side, I think that the global economy is in decent shape. Uh, there may be some post-pandemic blues that we're seeing, but actually uh, the latest forecasts of growth in 2021, uh, 5.5% for the world is quite strong and China at 8%. But I think it's important to see through uh, 2021 to what's going on in 2022, and that's where the sort of focus comes. So in particular, China slowing to 5.5% growth rates is one potential warning sign. Uh, and the other is inflation, but in inflation, really, the only thing I'm particularly worried about is energy prices, and that's got to do really with the price of oil and gas in the world. The supply side, I think we'll work through those problems, but these two issues of energy prices stoking inflation, and in the history of the world, you know, basically uh, the, the supply um, surpluses are being released normally affects things like oil prices. So if you get Saudi Arabia and others in OPEC agreeing to release oil supply into the world, that will bring the oil price down and with it control the inflation impulses. In China, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a managed collapse of Evergrande. Um, and, you know, but I think the bigger issue is, is 5.5% growth rates in China going to sustain or they're going to pick up? And they've been both masterful in the United States and in China in the past in managing the brakes and the accelerator around the monetary and fiscal impulses. So I think there are a couple of warning signs, but I'm broadly, uh, Bronwyn, relatively comfortable with where we're headed. Go. So, Colin, that's great. Um, thank you very much, Mia, for, for helping out the audio on this. Carl, I'm going to get you to come in here and, and just add to, to what Colin is saying. Yes. Uh, so, so, Bronwyn, I, I definitely think that Evergrande is, is a short-term noise issue. I'm sure Chinese regulators have insight into where the uh, financial exposures lie in the system, and they will do whatever is necessary to... Um, you know, uh, avoid a contagion effect. I do think uh, long-term inflation expectations are becoming a, an issue. Whenever I look at the financial press, there's always an article on, on inflation. And unfortunately, while I understand that, that some of that is temporary and due to the restart of the global economy, uh, some of that just by virtue of the fact that it is, um, you know, be, becoming a, an expectation issue might be more permanent uh, than, than we realize. Mia, again, it's about long-term trends from your perspective, and you're still not getting nervous about the global environment, are you? No, I must say, uh, like I've told you, I've, I've been very fortunate to learn to control my emotions and not get worked up emotional or, uh, or too worried. I mean, it, it's really not going to change a thing. So just we just have to deal with it. And I think when we consider the longer term trends, I think that the transitory nature of the inflation that the Fed is talking about, and when I've, I've listened to quite a vast array of, of commentators on this, and I, I'm very selective of who I listen to, 
And what I've, what I've come to, to sort of gather and, and conclude on my side is that it's the possibility that uh, the inflation could be transitory but could settle at a higher level than the Fed was used to. Over the last decade, the Fed had the inflation come in comfortably below the 2% uh, level that is their target. And, and it could very well settle at around the 2.75 level going forward. And that's, I mean, if there's a stabilization of that, that would still be, uh, still be a stable environment for the market but just getting back to the earnings season that kicked off from the, on the S&P and we've seen a very strong day yesterday a, a quite a strong rebound 1.7% up in the markets their strongest since March uh, the bank said that the, the if you listen to what the banks say it, you can actually gather that the consumer in the US is in a very good state it also seems like the consumers are starting to uh, become confident enough to take on some debt so they are a really Releasing their reserves in the banking side, that's leading to great profits for these or great earnings for these companies, uh, showing that uh, to, to the investors being able to pay our dividends. So the economy in, 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 um, in the US, exactly as Colin stated, is in a good state. And I think that the rebound after COVID is strong and I think it has legs. I think that there's a lot of substance to what we see from the US. So, Colin, Mia is definitely of the opinion that we're not going to see another economic crisis to the extent of, of 2008. Are you also in that camp? Yeah, I don't, I don't see a crisis coming. I, I think that there is going to be a potential reaction of the markets when the Fed does taper and when the Fed does raise interest rates. Uh, but we're not there. And if anything, actually, the IMF... Uh, reflects that there's been a softening of growth. It's been very strong, but there's been a slight softening. And so the inflation impulses from the Fed's point of view are going to be kind of less abrupt, let's call it that way. Uh, and um, there are even some concerns from economists like Nouriel Rubini that the Fed is not going to uh, taper as soon and he's concerned more about stagflation, which is lowering growth and heightening inflation. But I think those concerns, I think, can be managed. I don't believe uh, that we're going to go into uh, any shock um, at this point in time. The Chinese, again, I think, are the other critical pole in the world's economy. Uh, and, you know, their track record of managing the fiscal and monetary side has been extremely, extremely good. Um, so I, I think they will manage some of their property bubble uh, effectively and from a South African point of view they're critical because they affect the commodity environment and they affect therefore the price of our currency whereas the US really affects our equities uh, and our equities trade with much more leverage to to it but those two economies are essentially our, um, our uh, parents in the world economy. So, Carl, I want to bring you in here and talk about, I mean, let's stay with China as a theme, the banning of cryptocurrency on the 24th of September and um, the stance that basically it's a ban because we are seeing illegal trading, we are seeing money laundering in the crypto space. What does this mean ultimately for crypto? Because then you've got territories like Germany that are looking or allowing 20% of payments pension funds to be in the crypto space. Give me a sense of, of China and the regulatory environment and, and whether this is something we're going to see impacting crypto across the board. 
So um, the actions of the Chinese government against crypto actually started in 2019, uh, Bronwyn, and uh, Chinese citizens were banned from trading crypto inside China. Um, on the 24th of September, there was a ban on Bitcoin mining, I think, which could have uh, been prompted by China's energy problems currently, and a ban on crypto tr uh, trading by Chinese citizens outside China as well. I suppose from my side, um, this just raises a concern around regulatory risk about uh, around Bitcoin. Um, governments have um, have always historically, I, th I think they've got no incentive to encourage uh, the adoption of, of Bitcoin. And um, I, th I think the likelihood that um, other countries um, attempt similar things is, is possibly quite high. Although it is encouraging that in Germany, for example, uh, they are talking about allowing um, crypto to be added to the list of investable assets for their pension fund industry. Near this energy crisis, because Colin is going to build on on this conversation, could really rework the global order if it persists. How is it feeding into your investment themes? Because I think this is more than just short-term noise. How are you viewing energy from your perspective? Absolutely. You know, I think I've, I've seen an article in The Economist as well where they touch on the fact that this is the first real energy crisis that we're now seeing moving into the new world uh, where there's a, a, lot, a, lot, a lot more focus and a much bigger focus on, on renewable energy and the source of energy and also the climate agreement. So uh, it is a real challenge in, 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 in the globe for everyone to, to work very hard to attain those uh, carbon emission reductions that they've uh, either committed to or striving to reach. And, and when we, we consider energy, this is probably the easiest way to, to firstly uh, reduce your carbon emissions and to start implementing a better plan and program for your country. Now, I mean, just considering the energy crisis and what we've seen in the UK, for instance, and just to see how the UK has already shifted to, to renewables, there has been a massive drive over the past 10 years in the UK to move to renewables. They already get a substantial part of their energy uh, production from, from wind and from, uh, from solar to a lesser extent, but wind primarily. Uh, and as you know, you know, this is an area that I'm very, uh, very focused on. I think that in, even in South Africa, a country like South Africa, this is a great environment and a great opportunity for you. This is a, a great opportunity in an emerging market like South Africa to get investing into these type of projects. Not only is it good for your investors, it's also good for the country. You're really uplifting the community where you are building these projects, you're making it more sustainable, and you're really helping the country and everyone around you as a whole. So definitely something we're very focused on. As you know, we've already got that uh, that investment into the Titsikama Community Wind Farm that we did at the end of, uh, of 20, uh, 2019. And, and that, that has been a great a great move for us and we're focusing on new projects like that as well. There's so many opportunities like this in South Africa so you just have to look for them and the, the big thing is if you're the first mover it's never going to be easy and in South Africa it isn't very common for retail investors to have access to these type of investments because it is very difficult to get around all the regulatory hurdles etc but it is possible and we've shown that. So I really do hope that this doesn't stay a private equity type of investment that's only available for big institutions and but that, that that it does become more mainstream for the retail investor to really invest in. Ronan, can I interject quickly? Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Carl. 
Um, yes, yeah, so I'm all in favor of renewals adoption, but I think part of the energy crisis we're seeing at the moment um, is because renewals adoption has to happen in a staggered way. And I think mm -hmm. by turning off uh, too much um, coal-fired capacity and nuclear capacity, which is actually very clean energy, uh, we, we risk, um, you know, ending up in a situation where we don't have enough electricity because renewables sometimes do not count towards baseload and battery technology is not um, sophisticated enough to, to store all the power that is generated from renewables. Yes. So any adoption of renewables has to happen in a staggered fashion so we can avoid energy crises like the ones we're seeing today. Mia, you want to add to that? Of course. I mean, that, that makes sense. It's, uh, that's the prudent thing to do, but you have to start at some point. I'm happy to Colin, on when this. people ask you about the energy crisis, what is your response? So, so let me maybe just build on, on what Mia and Kyle have said. I think, you know, what we're going to see is we're going to see a transition to different technologies uh, emerging as well. So it's what we know, but also what we don't know. For example, I saw an interview uh, with the CEO of Rolls-Royce who was talking about an electric plane that they're testing. Uh, and I think that you're going to see all sorts of applications emerge. But as Carl says, it'll be a transition. And in South Africa, that transition is going to be a tough one away from coal, given coal is 90% of our, of our energy source. You know, but I think Andre Dureta is basically talking about a, a green finance transition with a transition to green energy. And to the extent that he's the CEO of ESCOM and states that, for some time, you will get that transition being pushed from within ESCOM, which I think is very constructive and I totally support. I think what that will mean is that in the world, you'll see, as Mia is saying, I think it's not just, you know, a, a marginal incremental. This is not a marginal incremental opportunity. This is an opportunity at the core of the economy's refit and what Joseph Biden President of the United States, his election platform was on the economy, was all about re-engineering the whole United States economy to be a climate-friendly economy. And that's across automobiles, across energy, across everything. And what that means is you're going to have in the United States and in China as the two primary economies, a complete demand for the commodities that feed, feed that re-engineering, which is extremely good for the South African economy. And actually, I think the PwC just released a report uh, which suggested that in the last 12 months, effectively, there's been about 220 billion rand of incremental profits from commodity companies relative to the prior year. That in your, on a 40% tax rate is effectively, you know, or the, the corporate tax rate, you know, is effectively around 100 billion rand of incremental revenues to the South African state, you know, which is very, very welcome when you've got the fiscal pressures we have. So I, I think this is, this is a, uh, an epoch-changing economic development, right, that we're witnessing. It's, it's akin to the development of the mobile phone technology 20 years ago, what we're seeing in the energy space. So you will have these kind of indigestions. They will affect uh, inflation. They will affect uh, the rate of interest rate changes. Uh, but I think over, overwhelmingly, it's to the positive for South Africa. Yeah. How are you playing the commodity spectrum at the moment? And I suppose you're going to pull out, just on the back of what Colin is saying, 
pull out oil as a separate play? And I'd like your view on, on Sassel in your answer. Is, is that question for me, Bronwyn? Sorry. It yes. is for you. Yes. yes. So okay. understanding commodities and, and certainly also the oil spectrum, if you pull that out yes. as a separate play. Yes, we, um, we don't generally invest um, heavily in commodities. And our reason for not doing so is, is simply because um, you, you become subject to the vagaries of, of commodity prices. Um, so um, the oil price is obviously looking quite high today. Whether it's sustainable and at these levels is, is an open question. Um, in, in terms of Sassol, um, my concern around Sassol is that it's always been a more marginal asset. And going back to the green theme, uh, the fact that it is one of the largest polluters in the world does raise questions around the viability of, of its business model. Uh, but yes, we, we see more, more opportunities in, in other fields, Bronwyn. And I suppose, Mia, you are going to concur. In fact, I've never pushed you on your view on Sassel, but I'm assuming that you're very much aligned to, to Carl, given your stance on the renewable energy space. Well, that is true, but the fact remains that, as I've also mentioned uh, numerous times, that I do believe in a very broad uh, diversification. Also, it's very uh, very unfair, I think, to just taint a company in a particular industry as a non-ESG company due to the fact that they don't have the right commodities. Of course, you can move away, but you're also seeing Sassel making big commitments to reduce their carbon emissions, to change their technologies, etc., which is a good thing. So, yes, I mean, we've seen the oil prices skyrocket from where it was, and that's really benefited not only uh, not only foreign companies but also the Sassel as we know but just to get back to to the green uh, the green economy and metal uh, metal production and metal uh, demand really around that is I've seen a very interesting slide from one of the fund managers that I work closely with where they've really put into context what the demand is for uh, for various metals nickel uh, copper PGMs in in normal gasoline vehicles and diesel vehicles and then in hybrids, uh, battery, EVs, and and uh, and fuel cell uh, um, vehicles, and the amount of metals that is actually needed in those vehicles with fuel cells and battery technology is staggering compared to what we've seen in gasoline and diesel vehicles. To just give you an example, the the amount of uh, of of um, of copper used in a gasoline car is about twenty five to twenty. Uh, 25 kilograms worth of copper, where when you move to an EV, you look at 80 kilograms. So that's about four times the amount of copper that's needed in a, in a battery-driven car that would then compared to a normal gasoline car. So these metals have big, uh, big demand for them lying ahead. And I think if you look at companies over the long term, if you've got a very broad diversification, you can stomach the volatility of certain, uh, certain commodity companies. But definitely not for the short term. I think that there are great opportunities to invest in some of these companies that are making the right decisions, moving into to to uh, uh, metals that are focused on these battery technologies, and that is positioned in a way where they've got the exposure to the PGMs, where they've been good allocators of capital. That's important as well for me when you look at a company, and these companies will benefit uh, going forward. Also, once again, EV technology, fuel cells—it's not something that's going to happen overnight, especially not in South Africa. 
Africa for various reasons. But, uh, but the transition is happening. So it might take 10, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, but it's happening. So long-term investors, there's definitely a space for this. And current valuations, as I've been speaking about, it's, uh, it's very attractive. Using it's, years, all reason, uh, it's all a good reason to have commodity assets in your portfolio as an asset yes. class. I mean, I don't think, I mean, certainly in my personal portfolio for the next 30 years, I'm going to have a certain segment, uh, you know, com committed to some kind of commodity ETF because they, you know, if you don't have that commodity ETF, I mean, in the last six months, that's been the outstanding asset class. Uh, Bronwyn, I also just wanted to add there, um, one of the benefits of having a globally diversified portfolio is that you can uh, buy access uh, to companies that are focused uh, directly on these um, commodities individually. So Mia brought up the example of copper, for example, Antofagasta is one of the holdings in our fund, uh, you know, best, best copper asset in the world. Unfortunately, South African investors that limit themselves to South Africa um, outside uh, the global diversifieds, um, your your opportunity set is quite limited. So um, outside the diversifieds, you're looking um, mostly at at, at platinum uh, stocks and and a few more marginal gold miners. So, Colin, I want to bring you in here on the rather uh, controversial uh, topic that, and it's on the back of the article that you penned of late, indicating that South Africa has a growth problem rather than a debt problem. Now, I know that this is currently uh, you are um, giving a further view on this, given the um, the argument that it's incited among a, a couple of economists. But this, perhaps you can just give us the lowdown and we'll put it to, to Mia and Carl as to the scenario and how it unfolds. Yeah, well, essentially, you know, what we had is a decade-long below population growth growth rate. Uh, you have a debt at GDP uh, which has risen and uh, is rising as a percentage of overall government expenditure in terms of the interest bill to 71% debt to GDP. But that's not, you know, not out of line with emerging market levels. Uh, I, you know, my basic for, uh, approach is to say, in order to deal with the fiscal consolidation problem, we need to get the remunerator and the denominator moving, meaning you need to get the growth function moving. And to the extent, as is displayed in China and the United States over time, if you look at their 30-year track record, they both built big debt stacks, but their growth has outpaced uh, the development of their debt. And what we don't have in South Africa is a growth function that is moving we talk a lot about structural reform, but we're very slow to implement it. Uh, and effectively, we will maintain uh, a strong handle on debt, which means the effectively austerity measures uh, do two things. They keep the debt low, but they also keep the growth low. So we, without unlocking the growth function, you're not going to change this problem. So effectively, it was a provocation uh, to say, let us think about the growth function and what will stimulate the growth function. And in effect, there are four interrelated measures. One is expanding social welfare. There's a very interesting article by Danny Roderick of Harvard, where he talks about the social function and the growth functioning being inter interacting, meaning if you put money and you stimulate 
both individual firms and individuals, and you think in South Africa we're 12 million unemployed, 15 million people working, and the 12 million unemployed have no form of social grants. All the grants are for either below 18-year-olds or after over 59-year-olds. So if you do that, you basically stimulate the consumption economy because all that money gets spent on essentials, food and clothing, effectively, uh, and come back into the South African economy, which is stimulatory activity. A lot of the people on the 350 rand temporary grant that ends in April next year have commented how it's fueled a commodity, uh, I mean, sorry, a consumer boom, but it's transitory because this is not a permanent. So I talk about a social stimulus. Then we talk about fiscal consolidation measures, including the public sector wage bill, talk about effectively the, uh, the structural reforms. But remember, structural reforms are not immediate. They take time. So the telecommunications reforms, the spectrum reforms, infrastructure reforms, all these things must be done. But we need to immediately stimulate the economy. And then there's the SMEs, getting the SMEs going. So this is a provocation which says, how do we get the engine of the economy moving? Uh, and some people don't like it because they think that uh, that uh, the debt levels are high and unsustainable and we have to just clamp down. Uh, but what is, where does that leave the 12, 12 million unemployed? Where does that leave the social and political balances in the society? Are we going to allow 50 billion rand to be lost to another July insurrection uh, when these 12 million people go on to desperate measures uh, to effectively feed their own families, which is entirely understandable. And Mia, this is a conversation we've had often about really stimulating the growth engine of the economy. We are going to be moving to the hot stocks portion of the show shortly. We've got three minutes left on the spectrum. But Mia, just give me your sense on, on Colin's um, verbiage there. Yes, well, I, I'm in agreement. I think the fact remains that that growth is the big uh, the big the big driver in South Africa that we need to to do anything here to get anything done and to firstly to uplift this country as a whole and when you just consider the fact of 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 investment in infrastructure South Africa we know that it has over the last couple of years it's less than uh, than fifteen percent of of GDP it needs to be at thirty percent just to sustain the current uh, the current infrastructure that we have so there as you can see there's enormous growth potential in south africa you can't invest in infrastructure if you don't take on debt so uh, public and private uh, uh, partnership is is the way to go and that seems to be the the, the government at the stage in India. and i really hope that that does take take off uh, more substantial and that it that it will uh, will will lead to more job creation in South Africa because we know that is the big big issue that we sit with here. Carl, you've been nodding um, as you've been listening there. Just give me your sense. Uh, um, Bronwyn, I'm completely in, in agreement. I do, however, think there are other reforms uh, that we can make um, before we um, increase the social welfare burden. Uh, for me, the biggest issue is unlocking private sector investment. And uh, the way you do that is to increase confidence, uh, business confidence specifically. And a few easy measures, I think, would have the effect of, of doing that. On the social welfare issue, um, while it may have the effect of expanding growth, I do worry 
about the fiscal costs of such measures. Um, so it, it is quite contentious. Which, which way does it swing? Uh, does it un unlock growth or does it just add to, to, the, to the fiscal burden? But completely in agreement on all the other points that we need to see reform and we need to increase the growth. Colin, just before we, we go to the hot stocks with uh, Carl and, and with Mia, getting your positioning as co-chairman on the Youth Employment Service, obviously co-chairman was Stephen Kossif. I, I believe you've got some great traction in that space. Can you give me some of the tangible stats? Because, of course, employment is what we're wanting. Employment for our youth is what we're wanting in South Africa. Uh, give me some of the stats in terms mm. of what you are achieving in the Youth Employment Service. Okay. So the Youth Employment Service to date is uh, 65,000 uh, one-year paid interns uh, in South African businesses, which is, uh, is great. It's, it's way below what we'd like to see. But remember Harambe, the Presidential Youth Stimulus, uh, the Jobs Fund, a number of others, you know, are also doing this. So there is an effort. But let me just make it very clear that when you have 12 million unemployed, a 44% broad unemployment rate, uh, you have to have a war on unemployment. This is, you know, what we are achieving is on the margins. So what we need is a fundamental change, uh, which means economic reform, but it also means social impact. It means business playing its role in a, in a different kind of way in order to create the environment for business that will be sustainable in the long term. And the president certainly wants to see a large-scale move, a quantum leap in our war on unemployment. But that's what it has to be. We have to be singly focused on getting the unemployment uh, situation uh, on the back foot. 100%. I couldn't agree more. A war on unemployment in South Africa is what is needed. Mia, let's go to the hot stock in your space. Yes, yeah, so I mean, just the, the the side note, as I always do give, is that we we follow a very broad diversification approach. So when I talk about a hot stock, it's one of a lot of various positions, and not only of stock positions in our portfolios, but just on the note spoke about renewable energy and about the energy crisis that we're seeing, about where the where country uh, emission reductions, etc. We know it's going to be. We know that there's going to be a lot of batteries needed. Even Carl alluded to the fact that at this stage, batteries can't keep nearly enough energy. Uh, so there's a lot of technology and development in that area that still has to happen. And Sabanya Stillwater has been focusing on that area. Of course, it's not something that's already been done. So they are moving into that area with good capital allocation to projects that seem to be a very quite excited about what the company has doing we know that they've they've been allocating capital very effectively in a way that you now really over four months uh, capital or cash flow already earned back what they've paid for all their their deals up until now so that's a big number uh, so they're trading at a very attractive price like a lot of the companies that's very uh, very um, much driven by the commodity prices that's why it's so volatile it doesn't always reflect the the value of the company itself but this company at the current stage pays a dividend of over 11 percent and you're buying it at less than four four times uh, price to earnings. So I think it's a it's a quite a quite a good a risk adjusted uh, choice to make if you want to to add to that side of your portfolio. Carl, from your side. 
I think from from my side, um, I would stick with with the China theme. Uh, we've obviously seen um, a number of regulatory developments out of China, which have made investors nervous. But some of the Chinese uh, tech names, especially, are looking very, very cheap. So you look at Alibaba, for example, trading on three t uh, 13 times um, core e-commerce um, e earnings. Um, I, th I think some of these names, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to buy them. And then, Colin, as our special guest on the business of money and hot stocks, final word goes to you. What do you want to leave our audience with today? Well, listen to Mia and Kyle uh, rather than listening to me. Um, but I think um, I think the long-term trends around commodities is a very interesting fundamental theme. Uh, the refitting of the world for um, for climate change, you know, is a very fundamental issue. I do think there's going to be noise as we enter into 2022, as we come out of what's been a two-year shock to the economy. So the shock felt terrible in 2020. We're feeling better now, but it's all part of the same trend. And the world will only really recover to pre-pandemic levels in the developed world in 2022 and in the developing world in 2023. And really, it's a question for South Africa of what path we take. We want to take the fork in the road that leads to a fundamental inclusive growth path. Mm -hmm. uh, and to do that, we need to make a whole bunch of choices. Uh, so read the Sunday Times for uh, an article I've written with some very prominent international names that will give you the views on how we can achieve that. Uh, and thanks, Bronwyn, for hosting a great show. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us, Colin Coleman, Carl Wales, and Mia Kruger. That's the business of money and hot stocks. We'll be back same time next week, nine o'clock on a Friday. Thanks everybody for joining us. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position, or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer, or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.